Hi, this is John Eldridge, and welcome to the Ransomed Heart podcast. What we are doing over this series is exploring the personality of Jesus from my new book, Beautiful Outlaw. There is absolutely no one and nothing that is more captivating than Jesus when you can see him as he really is. And to know Jesus as he really is, is to fall in love with him. So what we're doing in this series, I am reading some excerpts from a new book called Beautiful Outlaw, discovering the playful, extravagant, disruptive personality of Jesus. And so let's explore Jesus together. Picture seven-year-old Jesus in the shop out back, learning from Joseph how to use a hammer and a saw. He who hung galaxies in such perfect poise, like a hundred billion mobiles, has to be shown how to nail two boards together? I take my shoes off. The humility of this is beyond words. We don't appreciate Jesus' cunning because we insist on clinging to our naive view of the world. We just want life to be easy. We just want life to be good. We don't want to deal with evil, so we pretend we don't have to. We don't want to navigate sin, either. We prefer our coffeehouse chit-chat, our Twitter-level engagement. We play at church. It's as though we think our mission and our context is something other than what it was for Jesus, even though he said, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you, John twenty twenty one. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, People will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? Eight hundred gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it four hundred. And then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it eight hundred. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. From Luke chapter 16. Jesus is more impressed with the cunning of the people of this world than he is with the naivete so common to the people of the light. And then, back to the doves and snakes analogy, he urges us to be cunning. I want you to be smart in the same way, not complacently just get by on good behavior, from Peterson's translation in the message. There's a certain charm to a Forrest Gump naivete, the kind your grandmother had as she wore her white gloves to church. But is that the kind of person you could trust with your life? God's response to the Tower of Babel uprising was cunning. 
confusing the languages of the earth. It was certainly better than taking away the faculty of speech. Men could make some headway, but they would have a heck of a time uniting the world again in a rebellion against God. Setting eternity in our hearts was cunning, so that every last one of us would be haunted all our days with unmet longings that would cause us to seek the only fountain that can quench our thirst. Sex was cunning. Given the selfishness and self-centeredness of mankind, how else to get people to commit to the daily sacrifice for a lifetime called parenting? I think the movement of the Spirit in the church is cunning. First here, then there, keeping men from systemizing it, keeping the enemy from squelching it. It's like a game of rugby. Jesus is holy and cunning. It's part of what makes me love him. Humility. We've been running to and fro in the Gospels, picking up one treasure, then dashing off to find another like children on Christmas morning. Now I want to look at a moment from Jesus' life that is recorded in the Old Testament, in the book of Daniel. This honest prophet, who spent his adult years in exile serving the Babylonian courts, was given a number of startling glimpses into the future. Here, in my opinion, is the most dazzling of them all. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All people, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. From Daniel 7. The Coronation of Jesus perhaps the most joyful, certainly the most triumphant moment in history, second only to the resurrection. For now, the glorious kingdom will come, the eternal summer romp of men and angels. His crowning ensures the triumph of a kingdom of laughter and beauty and life forever. But it was a long and circuitous road to that throne. No king has ever taken such a humble path. His first step is a staggering descent. The Son of God becomes a Son of Man. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient. Philippians 2. Humbled himself? Humility hardly begins to describe the incarnation. That's like saying it would be a humble thing for you to become a goldfish, to live in the bowl, in a fishy world, trying to help those other fishies become something more like phoenixes. It boggles the mind. The eternal Son of God, light of light, very God of very God, one substance with the Father, spent nine months developing in Mary's uterus? Jesus passed through her birth canal. He had to learn to walk. The Word of God had to learn to talk. He who calls the stars by name 
had to learn the names of everything, just as you did. This is a cup. Can you say cup? Cup. Or did you think that baby Jesus came into the world with the vocabulary of dictionary.com? For ages upon ages, his generous hand fed every creature on earth, and now it is he that has to be fed, spoon-fed, drooling most of it down his chin like any other toddler. The Son of God doesn't even know how to tie his shoes. Someone had to teach him how to tie those sandals. John the Baptist said none of us were worthy to untie. The rabbit goes around the tree and down through the hole, like that. Now, you try it. Picture seven-year-old Jesus in the shop out back, learning from Joseph how to use a hammer and a saw. He who hung galaxies in such perfect poise, like a hundred billion mobiles, has to be shown how to nail two boards together? I take my shoes off. The humility of this is beyond words. Remember, Jesus wasn't faking it when he took on his humanity. Think of the implications. He who never tires, never slumbers, accepted the need for sleep every night. How deep was the exhaustion that kept him dozing right through the gale, waves crashing over the boat? Jesus ate every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He needed to. He had to trim his toenails. He who clothes the lilies of the field with greater glory than Solomon's splendor had to do his laundry, squatting riverside, rinsing the dust from his worn garments like any other peasant. What about the humility of simply getting from here to there by means of walking? We read that Jesus left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. And we don't pause to wonder, how far was that? More than 70 miles, a two- to three-day journey on foot, pushing sun up to sundown. If you bypass Samaria, which most Jews did, it was a four- to five-day trip of 120 miles. When was the last time you walked three or four days straight? We pass right over phrases such as, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, as though it happened quick as we read it, like he ran across the street for a quart of milk. Bethany to Cana is roughly 60 miles. Back down to Jerusalem is another 45 plus. Jesus is making these trips all the time. He who once rode on the wings of the wind is now getting around only as fast as his two sore feet will carry him. Hours and hours for days and months upon end just walking. God who is in all places at all times, has to get from one place to another like a guy who can't even come up with bus fare? The beauty of this is enough to make me weep. When time comes for Jesus to start the official campaign, here is how he enters public life. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. 
confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented from Matthew chapter 3. Throngs are flooding to the Jordan to be baptized by John. The whole region is making their way to the river. Jesus files down bankside with the rest of the crowd and takes a place in line. Nobody gives him a second glance. He's just another sun-baked Jew in robe and sandals, taking his turn like a guy at a deli waiting for his number to be called. John looks up from his several hundredth baptizee and sees Jesus standing there. He is flabbergasted. He protests, never in a million years could I do this. Jesus says, it's fine. This is a good thing. It's all right. And then he steps into the river and John dunks him like the rest. It is an absolutely unimpressive story when compared with the men who think they've come to change the world. How do they usually get things rolling? Picture the scene in the movie Gladiator, typical to the inauguration of Roman emperors, where Commodus rides into Rome on a chariot like a conquering hero. Cheering mobs line the roads, paid to attend to make a good impression. Amid all of the hollow pomp, the pompous fool gives a demure wave, feigning humble acceptance of the throne. It is appalling in its arrogance. When Saddam Hussein was ousted from his dictatorship, a good deal of coverage was given to public places in Iraq. What I found particularly disgraceful were the massive idols he had erected in his honor. Murals and statues of Hussein the Magnificent were plastered all over the country. A handsome and dashing military hero, bold, a man for the people, 40 years younger than he actually was, a demigod. Many dictators have done the same. Hitler did it. Chairman Mao, too. It's just creepy. The self-obsession, the self-exaltation, the desire to be worshipped. And yet the only king who ever had the right to be worshipped shows up riverside at somebody else's revival and waits his turn. Afterward, there's no press conference, no sermon. Jesus just disappears for 40 days, and the only one who seems to notice is the wild Baptist in the camel skin. A day or two after his return, Jesus is just strolling by, and John, gripped with excitement, seizes his own pupils by the shoulders and says, Look! Look! There he is! The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and as he watched Jesus walk by, he exclaimed, Look! Here is the Lamb of God! The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, what are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. From John 1. Rabbi, where are you staying? Oh, come on! Is that what they really want to ask? Their master just bet it all on this man. Don't you think they're dying to ask, are you the Son of God, our Messiah? 
Are you really the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world? This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Jesus sees that he's being followed, and in his typical fashion, he simply says, Can I help you? Smiling, head cocked, eyebrows raised. They must have been flummoxed, like you would be, because they ask the lamest question, Where are you staying? That's the question kindergartners ask one another on the first day of school. Where do you live? Jesus disarms their fumbling awe by saying, Come and see. Not, Oh, here and there. Not, Oh, over on the other side of town. Come on, I'll show you. Humble and inviting. Andrew races off to find Peter. Philip runs to get Nathaniel. And the little band begins to coalesce. They wander up to Galilee, where Jesus taps James and John. None of them know it yet, but they will become the most famous band of brothers in the world. Thus, Jesus starts his ministry. We've all heard the story and missed the miracle. God begins his greatest work by including us. Even though we bungled it so badly the first time back in Eden, once again, he shares in the excitement. Come with me. You have a part in this, the recreation of the world. Can you name one world leader who has done anything even close to this? What were the names of Buddha's disciples? Gandhi's, George Washington's. Apart from a few history buffs, none of us can name even one. But everyone who hears about Jesus hears about the Twelve and can probably name Peter, Matthew, James, and John, certainly Judas. Jesus and his disciples go hand in hand, right here from the start. He acts like it's not all about him. He shares the stage, shares the spotlight. He shares his glory. I have given them the glory that you gave me, John seventeen twenty two. He even shares his suffering, the crown of thorns, the cross. Is this not the noblest part of his whole life, the very thing we worship him for? Even in this, he offers to us the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. It is an honor I cannot begin to fathom. Once chosen, Jesus then needs to disciple these fishermen tax collectors and political revolutionaries who drop their careers to follow him. I'm not sure we've understood the ramifications of his decision. We just think, oh yeah, the disciples, and forget what was actually required for them to become apostles. This is going to take a lot of work. There's no fairy godmother waving her wand here. These pumpkins don't just turn into coaches. To show you just what sort of patience and long-suffering it took to train these knuckleheads, let's drop in on two private conversations Jesus has with his apprentices. I love it that these were recorded for posterity. This first one takes place maybe a day after the boys helped Jesus feed a crowd of 4,000 using seven loaves and a few small fish. It cracks me up that small is underscored as if it would have been easier with a few large fish. They personally handed out the bread that kept multiplying in their hands. They gathered up the seven basketfuls afterward. As they head out of town, Jesus has another run-in with the religious leaders, those sanctified Machiavellis, and he's getting pretty sick of it. 
they demand from him a sign. Jesus says they're not going to get one. Then he turns and warns the boys about the infectious corruption of the religious haze. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed it among themselves and said, it is because we didn't bring any bread. Matthew 16, 5 through 7. How many of these little whispered asides take place between the disciples over the years? Simon, what do you think he meant by that? This one is priceless. Somebody whispers, he's mad at us because we forgot to bring bread. Okay, even if Jesus was talking about bread, how could they possibly worry about bread anymore? They've seen Jesus handle that problem with staggering ease. Yesterday. But Jesus didn't mention bread. How did they make the jump from a warning about the fungus of the Pharisees to what are we going to do for dinner? It is quite a leap of logic, a jump not even evil Knievel could make. Oh, Jesus, how many times does a man have to explain himself? He clearly sounds frustrated. I love the next line. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Aware of their discussion, Did they not notice he was in the same boat when they started this little whispered debate? Jesus goes on, Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the five thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, now we get it. You were talking about their teaching. Honestly, sometimes these guys seem thick as an engine block. This second anecdote takes place as Jesus is now making his way toward Jerusalem for the final showdown. He sends an advanced team before him to secure a night's lodging in a Samaritan town, but the door is slammed in their face. Furious, they return to Jesus with the report, chomping for revenge. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him, but they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw it, They said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village. Well, they certainly get credit for passion. We'll give them an A for zeal. But as for comprehension, they get an F. For heaven's sake, these guys had front row seats for the Sermon on the Mount, got private lessons on it afterward for nearly three years now. They have had Jesus as their personal tutor. No, fellas, we're not going to be torching villages. This isn't Sherman's march to the sea. Let's try this again. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Talk about exasperating. How does Jesus put up with these numbskulls? It's like training the hobbits to run a country. It proves his humility is genuine, though. I mean, anybody can fake this for a while. 
To be a crowd-drawing teacher can be a rather heady experience, all eyes looking to you for the next bit of wisdom to drop from your lips. It's easy to be gracious when you're adored. But when your class keeps missing the point, challenging you, running down rabbit trails, changing the subject, misunderstanding, breaking out into a brawl, that's when your character is exposed. I never really saw the endurance of this. I think the shining brilliance of what Jesus is teaching has obscured the process involved here, all that this required of him. We've become so used to Jesus being gracious and kind and patient, we miss the humility of it. I hope that you have been enjoying these excerpts from Beautiful Outlaw. I want so badly to break Jesus out of the religious fog, break him out of the ridiculous and horrifying stereotypes that he's been put in. I want people to know him, to fall in love with him, because when you know Jesus as he really is, you can't help but fall in love with him. You can't help but trust him with your life and then to be able to receive his incredible personality into our life and have it transform us. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen in the world. And now you can be a part of this revolution. We want you to be a part of bringing this Jesus to the world. We have got fantastic resources that go along with this project for you to be able to take this message out into your world. Very simply, we've got a book trailer, like a movie trailer that you can email to your list. We've got free videos, in fact, a whole 18-part series that go with each chapter of the book that small groups can use, and we're offering those for a limited time free online so that you can share those with others. So for more information on all of this, come to beautifuloutlaw.net.